0: This is Speak Theology with Chris Green.
1: All right, for those who have been listening, or if this is your first time, um, we're talking about Colossians. And basically, the way that this began is the church where I serve as the teaching pastor. We were wanting to engage uh, one of one of the shorter letters in the New Testament for for our small groups to read through, and pretty quickly. Um, I talked to you, Chris, about this and said, you know, we're going to do Colossians, but I don't want this to be like um, so many, so many kind of small group book studies that I've been a part of, which are a sort of, um, you know, let's spend a lot of time talking about background kind of stuff before we ever get into the text. And then, you know, once we do, it's a, you know, largely kind of historical, critical, informed approach. And immediately you said, why don't you just start at the end? And so that's, that's what we did. And that's what we've done in this podcast. We've started, started at the end of the letter, kind of see where things and how things end up for Paul. And, uh, and then we've kind of gone back in, into chapter one, um, both with, with the guys and now, and most recently you talked to Jordan Daniel Wood and now, now we get the joy of talking with, with Cherith about it. Absolutely. So Cherith, it's always
0: good to have you. Always good to be with you. You have heard, I know, I think all of these conversations, at least most of them up to this point. So why don't you start reflecting a bit on what you've heard us say, and then we'll go through chapter one, what you are noticing we didn't cover or needs more kind of fleshing out.
2: Well, I, I think what I noticed is the fact that the conversations have really reflected the, the beauty of life in Christ in the sense that it's always Christ and it's always his life and it's always our life that's only ever truly lived in Christ, right? So we don't get to talk theology and then figure out how to go live some practices. Right. It's to recognize that even as you guys began at the end of the letter, that there's something so fantastic about being able to just say... I'm gonna address these really, some of them just feel ordinary, but they're all important to him, right? They're like these are the things I'm choosing to say at the end of this very small letter mm-hmm. to these specific people and sending these greetings so that there's a sense of our relational life together and cohesion, but also the fact that I am speaking into your life because we share this life together in Christ. And I'm gonna ask you as a people to speak into the life Right. Of Aristarchus or like whoever is like just trying to think like who actually gets to be addressed because this is our life together. There is no other way. And the fact that Paul prays at the beginning of Colossians in a way that says, oh, we're really aware, like people are aware, the world, as he puts it, is sort of aware of your the faith and love that have been springing up in you because of the hope that really is held for you in heaven, which is, as he's going to unpack it is Jesus, right? So the person who I really wanted you always to know, you must really be getting to know him because Mm -hmm. this hope is not a hope in a kind of theological idea. It's a hope in someone who you're discovering is the whole of your life. And it's the whole, he's the whole of your life together. And then to just be able to sort of reflect on the fact that also in Paul's way of kind of praying, connecting his life to them and prayer, one of the things that struck me so much in the second conversation as part of the takeaway was that even, even as there was the conversation around agency and that so often, for instance, where there was the woman that Bill brought up who was just wrestling right with having to be stretched it sounded like and certain things that were happening in the life of a church and saying i found a different place i i just wanted the gospel without all the theology right and, st- <laughs> and, and your response was like well you know may, maybe what that is cuz Bill was like what is it he's like you're like maybe what that is is just the longing for familiarity when you just feel like your language is like just even to coming into the space of shared worship and And now you have to think about every single word because every third word has been reconsidered, right, and reexamined or whatever that is. But it's also, I think there's just a deep fearfulness in us, right, that if our doctrines get stretched, then we don't know where we are. Instead of going, no, actually, if we just keep being in Jesus and encounter Jesus, there is no other way to be stretched because to be conformed to the image of Jesus, which is, the goal of Christ and us the hope of glory means a constant stretching and maturing into form. And that is not passive. Right. And it isn't something to be resisted, even though resistance will happen. I'm thinking about what you have to do after this podcast, right. Like Mm -hmm. resistance is part of the work of a workout, but it's a good resistance. It says, you know, how do I find myself in both, the, the union of this and also the distinction of how that gets played out in my life. So I love the conversation on agency. I also love the fact that you were bringing in McGillchrist to just help us in such a lovely way, see that those multiple layers of Colossians are really happening, right? Like we can, we can get down in the very way Christopher was just saying, I don't want to do the micromanaging left brain let's Mm -hmm. analyze deconstruct bring it down to its atomistic reductionist pieces and then go gosh i really conquered that letter and now i know like one more thing i feel more confident in about jesus but not my life in jesus this letter is always asking us to do what McGill chris keeps saying the right hemisphere is going to do which is it's going to be able to hold both the the details and the whole but once you get the two together Now you're in the space of mystery because it's neither neither one, like he says, by the right hemisphere by itself, that actually the right hemisphere can't, like you remember, I don't know if you saw in his book where he does the thing with the tree and he's like, when I, when he gets his clients to draw the tree, right? He says, when I, when I close off their ability to access their right hemisphere, they can only draw half a tree, Mm -hmm. exactly half a tree, but it's pretty specific. He says, when I invite, when I click on the left brain, they can do the whole tree, but it's pretty wild looking, right? It's pretty hard to figure out what it really is. But he says, once you put those two things together, you haven't comprehended the tree. You just can see the fact that there's a whole tree there and you have to speak it in a way that is more tree-ness than the sum of its parts or the wild imaginations are. And somehow Paul just is able to hold all of that together and bring us down to look at the detail and then just swoop back out and go, lest any of us think we've conquered anything. Let's just get conquered by Jesus yet again into this submission of love. So those are some of the things I just really loved about what you were talking about.
0: Yeah, it's so good. And I, I think the, one of the reasons I appreciate so much what you bring to these conversations. And of course I've had the joy of being in lots of different conversations with you about lots of different texts and topics, but you've integrated theology and your relationship with Jesus so intimately that the two are not at odds for you and they any more than they are for Paul. And they shouldn't be right. I mean, part of what just this week, I wrote two things on the one hand, I was, Writing about how we've tried to, we were so confident here by we, I mean Christians in my Pentecostal tradition. We were so confident in our spirituality, we thought theology was redundant, superfluous, right? Like our spirituality was everything we needed and more. We never needed to bother with doctrine, right? So we got, as I put it, we got out of the doctrine business. It wasn't profitable and it was unnecessary anyway, right? Well, but the problem is without doctrine, it becomes impossible. Without doctrine kind of maintaining your language, you, you start to lose touch with how this Jesus that you know can do what he says he's going to do
1: mm-hmm. and
0: how he can be who the church says he is. So even though he remains, you know, this living one remains even when our doctrine is gone, we can't really track him like we we're trying to draw that tree without having the ability to to bring kind of specifics to bear, and so we we just we drift right we we it becomes wild, but the more vital thing of course, is to know that it's him, not the doctrines about him that transfigure us right, so we won't be able to know, and that's just today I was writing, I think concluding my chapter on Ezekiel for the Christology book. And I was making the point that there are all kinds of connections literarily between Ezekiel and the new Testament in the apocalypse, especially, but it's all the way through the new Testament, but we're, there's a kind of bad scholarly habit of talking about those connections as merely theological rather than experiential. That the point is Peter and John and Paul make the connections between their experience of Jesus and Ezekiel's experience of the one, in the appearance of the form of a man in the midst of the chariot throne, yeah. because they experience Jesus that way. Right? Like it's not that they notice in the texts certain things they find intriguing, certain ideas that they find persuasive, and then look for an experience that fits that. Yeah. As you put it, they get knocked over by this person, Jesus of Nazareth, and they get knocked over in such a way that they can't help but think about what Ezekiel said happened to him. And then they realize, Oh, that's the same person. Like Ezekiel ran into Jesus, just like we did the same Jesus. Yeah. This same Jesus is the one that Ezekiel and Isaiah and Moses and all the prophets ran into. Abraham rejoiced because he met him. We're rejoicing because we finally met him. And I I love that you kind of always hold that together, right? That, it's this experience of the living risen Jesus Mm. that both makes theology possible and necessary, but it's that relationship. It's that being claimed by him and known by him that is actually where the life is. Mm. Everything else is just keeping us oriented in that life.
2: Mm. Well, thank you for that. And I just also want to um, reflect on what you just said there about just the ways that as we sort of get, so maybe it's like connecting with and also just bringing us back to some other things that you've said in other um, parts of this conversation as well as just now, which is that if we don't have the good echoes, like if we don't know the way God has already spoken in his own scriptures, like we can't meet Jesus well. Right. And, and if we don't really trust that those are encounters with, Jesus of Nazareth, that when when Colossians is like it's it Paul is in in this beautiful sort of Christ hymn, the language is it's in it's not just Christ in whom all things have been held together and is the archae and also the the becoming as you were talking about, right? With um in the last conversation, just the that all of those things are so rich and deep, but but also that this one is is the one that they've encountered in such a way that as you were bringing it back to what does it mean to like be a pastor who can't control the effect of this person and relationship on people. And that, that is, that is good pastoring, right? That to be able to use the language of shepherd, you realize, you know, for for, um, John 10, for Jesus to be talking about being this kind of good shepherd as you were describing him, like just helping sheep not become wolves or, keeping them from nature, etc. It's like, Oh, but they also knew their scriptures like inside yes. out. Like they knew Ezekiel's talk about a bad shepherd in yeah. Ezekiel 34. And they knew that, that the ones who they'd been taught to listen to were not speaking with authority. Right. But also that this one who is their good shepherd. And so all the bells and whistles are going off like, Oh my gosh, like he's placing himself like right smack in the middle of, the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel that there would be good shepherding, but also the distrust of what isn't. And also just the, but he's never going to tell us like how it's going to work out. And the good shepherding is going to keep us from X, Y, or Z because they're still bringing these expectations, right? That, yep. and, and so I think the fact that they've encountered him and they have to encounter him risen and scarred only in that encounter as well. The the whole of encountering Jesus says, now when I think back on him as my good shepherd, it does not mean I am safely ensconced in the fold and nothing will ever touch me and nothing will happen to me. And good shepherding as a pastor is to make sure that my congregation just lines up all their beliefs about Jesus in a certain way, or that I can help them sort through the suffering that might occur that Jesus hasn't left them because they have a Jesus who should have protected them, right? Right. In a fold or something that suddenly to really encounter him and to be loved by him as the one who is loving a broken and suffering world right Mm -hmm. in our midst, including our suffering is to say, if you, you can't be afraid of me, but you have to know my voice and to know my voice as the one who isn't making you, suffer. My voice is the one who tells you that I am doing something with your suffering, which is exactly why I suffered. Mm -hmm. And without me, you will not know the difference, right? Without me, you will think I'm making this happen to you and you will blame me instead of believing that actually the only way for me to heal your suffering is to be present in it and with it as mine for you. And that's what a shepherd does is get in the way of harm but it doesn't mean that that harm is never shared experientially by the flock right so i just i think that there's something really again lovely about the fact that paul can appeal to a shared i i guess we could just use the word doctrine like there's a shared way of both knowing god through the history of israel and also go Like all the stuff we thought we knew it's so much bigger and so much more beautiful. And it comes down to just this single person who we ate with, we peed with behind the bushes, right? Like we're just like this, this man who we adore, we had no idea and we still will never have any idea, but we do know what faithful witness looks like. And it's going to look like him. Right. And Paul's letter just feels like it looks like him.
0: Yeah, uh, completely agree. And I think there's a, something lovely right about the fact that Jesus can be with them, still being who he is to them without them knowing it. you know, not frustrated or put out that they're not catching on. And yet when they start to catch on, they realize, oh, this is why the father said this, this is why the prophet said that. This is why our scriptures say this, right and they're they're starting to to realize, oh, there's a wisdom here that we've been gathering that does help us kind of know where we are when we're standing with Jesus to know why he's talking the way he is and why our lives are taking the shape they're taking. And so much of what I think maybe all, this may be a bit of an exaggeration, but much if not all of the new Testament is simply pastors trying to help their people understand why their lives are going the way they are Mm. given who Jesus is. Mm. Like, why are these things happening to you? Why are you doing these things? Why are you failing to do those things given who Jesus is? Right. And it's that kind of constant attention, you know, their, their pastoral attention to the people they love and the people God has called them to to oversee and, and their devotion to Jesus, their delight in Jesus. Like they're just always, they, they can no more separate those things than, than you could separate the son from the father or Jesus humanity from his divinity, so, Bruce, you want to weigh in on that? I want to turn us to the text in a moment. Before we do anything, you want
1: to say about? I mean, not much more than to just, you know, just to amen it. I mean that that's that's all here, and and that, I mean, what Paul knows and knows in his in his body, right, in his very being, that this this one. Um, who is you know who is the origin who is who is all in all is incorporating us into into his very body um that this the the work that god has done among us is to you know it's it's theotic right yeah we're it, we're going it, to be yeah. full participants
0: it's participatory and it keeps including people and things in its work One thing that that struck me, I don't I don't know that I've ever even noticed this verse before. But just the other day, I was reading Second John, and there's this line in Second John that those who abide in the teaching, and some manuscripts have the teaching of Christ, but in context, it's pretty clear it's the teaching about Jesus and the teaching from Jesus, but it's both things. Those who abide in the teaching have the Father and the Son. Those who abide in the teaching have the father and the son. Now of course that's a letter that already assumes the theology of the gospel that those who abide in the son have the father those who abide in the father have the son and the spirit. So what what is being said here right is not merely that if you get your doctrine right you're saved or some other bs. It's to say there's a way of knowing the son that allows you to abide in the teaching and there's a way of abiding in the teaching That is inseparable from knowing the son and having the son Mm. and the father. And that's what I think Paul is describing in Colossians one about truly comprehending the word. Like Mm. he says, from the day you heard this, you have begun to bear fruit from the day you heard it and truly comprehended. Mm. So there's a kind of comprehension of details that misses the point entirely. Right. Mm -hmm. But there is a kind of comprehension that is personal and intimate and sacramental and spirit filled you know and that's what we have to to seek and and not confuse one for the other so let, let's turn to the text then uh Jared. maybe maybe the place to start is there a place you want to start or, or do you want me to well i'm just point
2: i guess i'm just a uh, there's lots of places it would be fun to start but just even the comment no. that you both just made i think it even smack in the middle of the what we want to call the Christ hymn right
0: mhm mhm
2: but when we talk about participation, when going back to your comment, Chris, that so as we're reading Colossians 1, I want to I want this to be part of the lens through which I'm listening and, and speaking with you, is if if as pastors the call is to help people make sense of their lives given who Jesus is. Is that is that sort of what you said?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah.
2: Then I think that because participation is so foreign to so many of the ways that we came up, even in Pentecostal traditions, right? Because it was sort of like Jesus is done now, and then there's a baton pass to the spirit. So we're not really participating with Jesus, we're like going and doing the stuff of God with God the Spirit. Or even if it's not God the Spirit, it's the power of the Spirit. And and so to think about participation, actually, I think that's held in the Christ hymn, which is he's first, right? So everything starts with him. Yeah, yeah. And so then it's not like, well, you've got your life and then we know this about Jesus. And so how does that make sense that your life is a crazy storm in lieu of the, or in light of the fact that he's the Lord of all these things and loves you and blah, blah, blah. Instead of going, well, actually, what do it look like for the one who I, I was looking back at um, some notes from a long time ago from an, from FF Bruce's commentary on Colossians from just way back when. But he says this beautiful thing about Jesus is, it's the same in Christ as we're reading in the Christ hymn that should be the in the beginning. That Christ is the in in which all things were created in the beginning, right? That Yes. It's, yes. He's like the start of the whole everything, and his very being whole is the sphere in which all of these things can happen. But then in allowing in this freedom and love to let us become who we are suddenly because of the brokenness that now is our world that he doesn't cease to be the Lord of. It doesn't mean he's out there and we've somehow mastered a world that he has to come and fix, but just to think, what does it mean if we see him always as the one who's loving, so loving the world, right? With his father. Like I so love the world that everything about human history that you know is my union with a world i so love that i will covenant to love her and my image bearing siblings into the fullness of their life which is the language of paul we're going to see right in the rest of the letter that it's to bring things to fullness and that means having to bring a broken world through its brokenness into its fullness and i am Jesus says the full participation in bodily form. Here is the deity fully invested in this broken world. And so instead of us going, where is Jesus in my mess? It's to be going, Mm -hmm. how does our mess? Where where is Jesus? Because actually Jesus is first. So Mm -hmm. how do I look at my life as a way of going, oh, here's the mess of it that comes with broken people and broken relationships in a broken world. But Jesus has preceded me, not just in being here, but in holding this moment from the beginning to its end. So can I, as a pastor, lead people to see that this is Jesus' space that they're already in, and then get to know really well the marks of his wounds that are part of the healing of a world and the healing of their own life, even when what they're suffering is the, harm of the injuries that have been done to them right that require that healing. So, I think there's just something so important about the order in which Paul just says. <laughs> it it doesn't start with us and then we get to think about Jesus. It's we're just finding ourselves hid with him in God. So, let's see what that looks like, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think we can start anywhere that you would like in chapter 1, but I was so struck by the way that he is both reflecting on the fact that the world can see Jesus in the way that they've been praying with so much gratitude and the fact that he's not going to stop praying that whatever they're already knowing that God just keeps increasing. And then that prayer falls into praise. Right. And I want to talk about that if we can in relation to how he also then talks about conformity by taking off the old and putting on the new, and says, so how are you going to teach and admonish one another, right? Is he saying, this is what we're doing. We're proclaiming and admonishing him, but I've just sung a hymn to you or, you know, done some kind of beautiful poetic thing. But oh, by the way, when I ask you to do the same thing in the taking off and putting on and then indwell this gospel together, he's not going to, Going teach sermons to each other, right? There's something really different that he's going to do, and I want to I want us to look at that in relation to how he does chapter one. So
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think let's let's go there. I want to come back in a moment, perhaps, but let's do that first. Let's let's go there to to what you're seeing, and then we'll circle back.
2: Okay. So maybe in the um, spirit of the first Chris Green Christopher Brewer conversation, we'll look at three. And then jump back to one, right? Which, so here we are at three, where he has been, again, like through this sort of beautiful baptism language of two, of, of circumcision, right? Of literally in Christ, cutting off what is not true and healing in that cutting and, and then but you're also children who've, who have not just died, but have risen and are seated with him in this place. And so keep your eye there. And then that helps you put to death, like all the stuff that you just died to. And But it's an active ongoing agency. Like this is not Jesus and this is, and this is really familiar to you, but it's not Jesus. And in some of the religious experiences you've had, it's okay, right? But it's not Jesus. And so then when he calls them to, what does it look like to, sort of being renewed in knowledge in the image of the creator as the new self clothing ourselves, all that beautiful language he goes, he does this after you've kind of forgiven one another, bared with one another, putting on love that binds all these things together in perfect unity. He says this, let the peace of Christ. And I have in front of me, just the NIV, which is not the most beautiful, but here we go. The peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. How? (laughs) Through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in this astonishing kind of gratitude moment, he's like, as children of gratitude, like bring your bring your best selves and your best gifts. You know, yeah. Gentile slave girl, like bring your song to the Jewish man who 20 years ago couldn't even imagine acknowledging that you were alive, let alone speaking to you, let alone hearing the message of Christ or the word of Christ dwelling richly in him because of you. But you're coming with song, right? That's that's the crazy part. And so I think here Paul is like giving them this beautiful kind of poetic hymnic. It's not going to be doctrine that you throw at each other and beat each other up with. It's going to be worship language. that's going to take you out of yourselves in a sense, precisely so that you can give yourselves back to each other in ways that look like Jesus. Yeah. And what Blows me away about that. Rice is Paul is like come out of what we call that him, And then he's like, we're proclaiming him and admonishing and teaching everyone in wisdom. And he just does this as a way of doing that. But I, I remember the first time just really pondering the, the parallels there and thinking, oh, my gosh, like how much of my life that Jesus has kindly deconstructed to put back into a life of love is that I sang really 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 bad theology but that's the stuff that got into my christian imagination not like i don't remember hardly any sermons in my whole life but i can still call up the lyrics like they they viscerally live in me and in my muscle memory of things that are so destructive and so dualistic and so separating god from us and then something needing to be done to fix that separation and all the stuff that paul just doesn't even touch here as, as the mystery of our life in Christ. I'm like, man, we, we had better like listen with Paul and Ian McGilchrist to like how we really learn things and how our imaginations really form the things we most truly believe, not the ways that we can sort of didactically or in like tenets just like name off the thing i'm supposed to believe in or about it's like oh no 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 it's the stuff that i imagined into reality that paul i feel like is inviting them to go i would love now that you're doing all this imaginative taking off and putting on and you're basically being involved in the creative act in the image of the creator but you'd better do it in ways that are poetic and loose and hymnic, that that work their way into your lives, so that you're you're catching the end of one verse and somebody else's chorus, right? Of the how you sing your life into Christ and express the gratitude and thanksgiving that is what it means to be held in Him. So I'm really, I'm just, I love that.
1: Oh,
0: absolutely! I think so. So many thoughts. I mean, that that's what we're talking about when we talk about abiding in the teaching that is the word, that is the person of Jesus living the life of God and living our life with and for us. This line, it's so easy to to brush past it, but where you started, that we are made for peace because we are members of this body. Like We're members mm-hmm. of this body. We, we tend to start with Assuming that those are analogies for something else, right? That Paul is saying, you should live together as if you were one body. But he's not saying as if, right? (laughs) He's saying you are one body. Like you, you are made to look like Jesus because you are Jesus's. Like you belong to him, and you belong to him as surely as his body does. You belong to him as his body, and that's where your peace is, right? So, like, notice like, that's a teaching that we are the body of Christ, and it points us to a reality that we would just never stumble into. Like, you know, that line, Paul on Mars Hill, right, that God is not far from any of us, but we're stumbling. We're feeling our way around. And when the teaching comes to us, when it's touched, when it's revelatory, when the Spirit is resting on it, breathing on it and in it, it just points us to, oh, that's where he is, right? Like in, in the midst of all of this, that's where he abides. So when we're singing bad songs, I mean, we're not, it's not a merely academic failure or a a failure of, you know, crossing our T's and dotting our I's figuratively speaking. We're misdirecting people from, from God and therefore from what is happening in their lives. What is really happening in their lives. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. You know, Paul, so in Colossians, back to, to go back to chapter 1 for just a moment, mm-hmm. in verse 19, he makes an allusion to Psalm 68, 17, which talks about how God is pleased to dwell in mm-hmm. Zion. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Zion. And Paul just takes that phrase from 68, 17, and applies it, or I think it may be, I think that's right, and applies it to, I may have the wrong verse from the psalm, but it's from Psalm 68, and it apply, he applies it to Jesus, right? Jesus is the place, Jesus' body is the place where God's fullness is pleased to dwell. But if you go to the end of Psalm 68, it praises God's holy places, that God's habitations are wonderful. Wonderful are the habitations, plural, of God, the holy habitations. Mm -hmm. So I was meditating on that a couple weeks ago. It was in the lectionary for the the last Sunday of Easter. And what struck me about it is that God's holy places are in the depths of our places. To your point earlier, that Jesus has always preceded me. Whatever my experience is in the moment, Jesus has already lived this and he's lived it to the end. Loving me to the end by taking that experience as his. So that we have to say, whatever has ever happened to anyone has happened to him. He's taken it personally. And he's taken it personally as such and lived it so that whatever is happening to me, as far as I can experience it, as far as, far as I can name it, as far as I know, whatever has happened to me is held in what is happening to him and what is happening to me.
1: Great.
0: And that is where I, I I can trust, right? That what is happening to me is not the final word. It's not decisive because he's taken my experiences personally.
2: Right.
0: So whatever's happening to me, good or bad, there's a depth and a height and a breadth to it that belongs to him for my sake, right? That he's taken it on to give that to me so that, you know, if I'm violated or abused or neglected or misjudged, like, Whatever awful thing happens to me, whatever disappointing or dreadful thing happens to me, that is happening to me. Yes. But the Shepherd is taking that experience and shepherding that experience for me. And I, I think this is our hope. This is this is what, why Paul, you know, the language of Romans: we are more than conquerors in all of these things, because these experiences have been have been taken by Jesus, right? So he's not. Shielding us from reality, he's taking our reality and opening it up at its depths and heights and breadths. It's he's opening it up to the reality of God, and that's that's something that only revelatory doctrine could tell us. Like, we wouldn't stumble into that any other way, like, we, we wouldn't just get that on a hunch. God would have to show us, and the way God shows us is by showing people who then show us. I mean, that's that's the wonder of what, like, I think what Paul understands so well, because he lived it, right, mm. is that God is collaborative all the way down. Like God collaborates with his creatures at every turn and just won't work without his creatures. Not because he can't, but because it wouldn't be the work he wants to do if it didn't mm. include us, right? Mm. And and that fullness dwells in Christ's body precisely so that God can collaborate. The the body of Jesus makes it so that collaboration with God is possible, right? That we can we can partner with him. We can become a part of him. And that I think is I mean that's that's the wonder that Paul just can't get past, right? That that God wants that kind of collaboration. And the irony is up to that point Paul thinks God needs protecting. I mean Paul is mm-hmm trying to
2: enforce.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He realizes God is not vulnerable. I don't need to defend God against anyone or anything because God is collaborative. It's precisely God's humility and vulnerability that shows that God is not truly vulnerable, right? That God God can be wounded and he keeps right on being God. God can be killed and keeps right on being God. Mm -hmm. And And therefore, what am I defending, (laughs) right?
2: (laughs) Which I guess is a, um, there's just that, so our language betrays us, so maybe we just need to like reconfigure it, right? A little bit, which when we're looking to try to find Christ in our experience then, then it sounds like Paul's really trying to say, no, actually you need to find yourselves and what's happening to you in Christ, because- This is already fully owned and experienced and enjoined by Christ. So yeah. your life is hid with Christ in God. So this is not God-forsakenness. Mm-hmm. This is just what God looks like when the participation of God in our midst is the fellowship of suffering and glory, mm-hmm. and that it's precisely that they're together, right? You can't separate out the glory that looks like a cross. And you can't... So it's looking for something that just feels beyond excruciating right to just be like well this has to be god forsaken territory and go well actually if he's from the beginning and he's also the firstborn from among the dead then there's nothing left as romans 8 paul just kids like there's nothing to separate us from anything that christ hasn't already become the fullness of so whether it's like powers or principalities or death or your future or your past or whatever crazy is happening. How is all of this, the love of God in Christ holding you in all of this in a way that says, don't be afraid. It's all been claimed. You are fully claimed and held hidden because it's still yet to be revealed in you, but how you even respond to this. This is what we love about Paul right here. He's like, But your life is one of response as well. So the if clause, for instance, in like 23, is not that we only get to be reconciled if we hold on to all these truths. It's just, but in response, your life hid with Christ in God, the world gets to watch. And you get to become already part of the revealing of Christ Because you're going to show whether God knows how to participate in the fellowship of human suffering to be the last word, not just to go, well, I hope when we get through it, I can speak the last word. But you'll have to wait till the eschaton to hear it, right? But to go, no, if I'm Mm -hmm. the first and the last word, how could there be a safety that's holding on by your fingernails, right? A, A crying out in the dark that just goes, I cannot see the light of the kingdom of the son that the father loves, but I know I've been brought into that. And, and that means that the kingdom of darkness that often looks like light really confuses me. Right. But what looks really dark, these are the places where God hangs out in Christ and says, don't worry. Right. I I am the light who over all things, precisely in your pain and horror, and you should be horrified, but it's not absence. It's, presence of life with God in Christ, the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory, because you're already in him, but he's already got you in him first. I think that's the reversal. Like I need to find myself (laughs) in him instead of go try to find him in my life.
0: That's right. And it's a, it reiterates for me, at least the need for this. This is why good theology, spirit, led theology is so vital because we will settle for much less than that. Like we Mm -hmm. will, we will always settle for something far, far, far less than what is actually promised. The hope that Paul keeps holding out the hope of the gospel. Notice like in that passage, you just referenced at the end of 2023, he just says in passing. And I think I mentioned this in one of the earlier conversations that this is the hope promised by the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven
1: mm-hmm. or,
0: or in all creation. Now, what is Paul saying here? I mean, is, it, is this just hyperbole? Is he just like carried away? You know, is he evangelistically speaking? Right. What does he mean when he says that this gospel, this hope of this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation or to every creature? Well, what if he means that? What if he means that whatever's happened with Jesus has somehow touched every creature, every aspect of creation at its essence?
1: Yeah.
0: Right? We'll settle for less than that. Like, we'll settle for Jesus is my co pilot. <laughs> right? When what is being promised is. Not a personal relationship with Jesus who's on our side and sometimes breaks in to save us from the worst things or to give us better gifts than most people receive. Mm -hmm. What's promised is that He is everything and everything. Mm -hmm. Nothing that's ever happened to any creature happens apart from the life that He has and is and gives. That He is the depth and breadth and height of all things. Yeah. Like that, that is. Something again. We we would just not have groped our way to that. Like that's something.
1: Thank God, he shared with Paul, so Paul could share with us, right? Yeah, it's I, it's such an astounding claim. I mean, I cherish to your point about he's the end of creation, and then Chris, you brought up this line from Romans eight. You know, he's also the in all these things. Yes, right. He's that. Um, there, there is nowhere he's not, and yeah, and we settle. And I, it's not that I'm, I'm unsympathetic. I think, I think so much. Or let me let me say it like this: a generous read is that you know, at its best, our settling is a kind of no. Surely it can't be that good, <laughs> right? Go. Sure, surely this can't be surely he won't go there. Right. Um, And that's, you know, it's, it, it is amazing. I mean, you and Jordan were picking up on this in the last conversation, this kind of just astounding Christology present here in Colossians one, you know, that he's right. He kind of starts off this, this hymn about being, uh, you know, the firstborn. He, he inherits all things, but he's also the firstborn from among the dead. Yeah. Right? The heights and the depths.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes. He's in every part of it. And he's before
0: all of it. And all right. the things hold <laughs> yeah. together in him. Right. So he he is in all of these things, but he's in them as they're before and they're after, as well as their means. Right. I mean, oh, yeah. he, he's he's not contained, he contains. Right? he's not conditioned he conditions and the, uh, that's our hope and it and it but it's also why it is hope it's why it's something that we do not yet see and yet are saved even though we do don't see it yet right we're saved in hope it's a hope that is to come only because it belongs to an order we can't fully take in yet it's not to come in the sense that it's further down the timeline it's right, right, right. because it is in the life of God, which I'm not able to take in fully yet. Right? The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in his body. I'm growing up into that fullness. I can't yet take that in. Yeah. So hmm. it's not that, you know, someday Jesus will set the world right and we'll forget all of what's gone wrong. It's that nothing that's happened to us is over yet. We don't right. know yet anything that's really happened to us because nothing yeah. happened to us is over for him and therefore we and we haven't grown up enough right we haven't we haven't opened ourselves matured enough. is
2: part of the language of colossians right we haven't matured <laughs> enough into childlikeness. likeness
0: <laughs> and, and if we shift to the language of ephesians this is why paul has to pray that we will be enlarged and the only way that can happen is if god's own spirit lives in us like unless the holy spirit lives in you and your humanity is enlarged your the eyes of your heart are enlightened. you're not going to be able to see that what God is doing, what God has always been doing is before in under around over and through everything that has happened to you that you do and don't know, right. That you can and can't see. I want to go back. I I know we're going to have to turn toward home because of my, this commitment I've made. Uh, but I, I want to return to something you said, Jared, just in passing about the Pentecostalism that shaped a lot of us. I, I don't know that these are the, exactly the right words, but I think you'll know what I'm pointing to. I think we believed in possession, not participation. We believed in a spirit that took us over and made us do things. And right. it, was done. it was competitive, right? Yeah, that, exactly. That my humanity, my heart, my mind, my body... That was worldly. Only when the spirit possessed me w- could I cooperate with God. Right? But when the spirit's possessing me, then my humanity is va- is vacated, evacuated. Right? Like I'm not, I'm no longer myself. Right? I've become someone else. I remember this chilling, chilling line years and years ago. It's been more than twenty years now. I had this like favorite preacher. I, I listened to everything he did, and you know, just a, a kind of fanboy and i remember one sermon he said right as he started to preach he said said something about you know pray for me to be anointed because i like who i am under the anointing better more than who i am when i'm not and something in me like when he said that like, even though i mean i was positioned to to hear him i mean i i i really respected him and loved the teaching but as soon as he said that like i recoiled mm. Because what I heard was possession, right? I I didn't have language for it at the time. I didn't understand why I recalled, but I, I realized that I respected him, but he was trying to become something else. Mm. He wasn't interested in being who he was with us. Mm. He was up there trying to become something else. He couldn't be apart from that stage and those lights and that audience and i think that participation is something else entirely right participation is not the spirit taking us over and evacuating our humanity the anointing doesn't erase or deface us it it allows us to really be who we are so talk talk a little bit about that does that ring true for you in terms of your own experience or how how might you re rephrase that
2: yeah i i think it does there's certainly a a deep thread that ran through my experience in that way that just created a profoundly dualistic gnostic way that you know that just assumed even from childhood courses and sunday school lessons and everything else that that as much as the spirit could overtake me now i'm already participating in the point when i get to like ascend and my body gets dropped off at cloud 37 like Jesus is, right? I get to be an immortal soul because then I'm truly absorbed like into the life of God. I mean, I was such a good Gnostic without any of the language or any of the um, understanding of the theology at the time. But I think what's ironic is on the flip side, I can remember like how my junior high youth group leader was trying to encourage us toward like being filled with the spirit. And it was really something we had to possess, right? It was like, Mm. we've got to get the spirit and we've got to like somehow, whatever it is, like clean out the stuff or, or be open or whatever it was. There was like this, there was always going to be this conflict, right? It's I think Christopher, you put it like it was a, it was a competition and it was, it was shameful. And I remember just feeling bad, both in the fact that I, I wanted him when actually he was supposed to just take me. But I really wanted intimacy with him. And I had people in my church whose lives were very humble and very tender. And I watched their faithfulness. And I thought, I don't know how they put up with that. Because I knew the stuff they were putting up with in our little tiny church. And I thought, it must be God, right? And I thought, I want that. And I would watch my parents' lives and go, look what God is, look what they keep staying in. And look how they love. Because like so there was something that really longed for that. And then was like, oh, no, I sh- I shouldn't be because that's me acting on this. And then I think later in trying to uncover like how then that creates this weird bifurcation that denies the value of our humanity ultimately. So then we don't have an incarnate Lord because we just give him a body to get some stuff done because we've already been taught that inherently to talk about him as the Lord of creation before all things. And that they all things are held together in him. that means like creation's highest value and honor is like him, right? Like as both created and creature. I'm like, no one was giving me that. So I'm like, Oh Jesus, I'm really sorry today that I really love this world that you don't like very much. Right. That I know you're going to blow up at the end of everything. But today I just really love those whales. And I love that nature show that we watched and I love playing basketball. and I love all this. And then I would just feel so disloyal and so terrible. Right. So I think that the way that we speak and the way that we imagine our life in God has deeply destructive poss- you know possibilities and then outcomes and maybe that's one of the things that just strikes me to, to go back right smack dive into the middle of the hymn when it talks about that in him all things were created on heaven and on earth visible and invisible And this line just always strikes me, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And then to move over to two where it's like, don't be taken by captive and hollow deceptive stuff, which is really sort of like... um, empty headed when he's your head, right? Like there's no room for empty headedness. If you're a body where the fullness of everything is held in him, who's your source in your head, how could you get caught up in that? Right? So it's like you too, the fullness of all that is bodily has been shared with you and your life is in that too. And then the next line is he is the head over every power and authority. So I'm like, okay, Jesus, like, and I want to hear you talk about this. Cause I'm like, I, I think somehow knowing the beginning from the end and being all the way through, like he does let us have what is partial authority all the time. Like we're only, even this podcast, like it's just our little partial moment to say, here's the best I can offer on this little moment. But would I have said this the same way 20 years ago when I was just fighting Jesus about so much? Probably not. Who knows what I'll say in 84, but it's the partiality that says, well, It doesn't mean there's not power here. It doesn't mean there's not authority. But I also think that Paul is just naming that in the middle of both what is God's true authority and the fact that all things come from him, somehow the ways that authority then as it gets claimed by the world and then the people of God want to make it work the way the world works it. Yes. That I think was what I was also picking up in your conversation two times ago with Bill and David, which was, oh, that's part of what we want as pastors is to somehow exercise an authority that gets things lined up for people and doesn't mm-hmm. know how to just pray them into the presence of God once we begin to start trying to hold them too much. It's like yep. the only answer is just to pray them back into their hidden life in Christ and just that's stand right. with them there and hold them there. So I'm curious um, with you about like how this would be Besides creation, like the very first thing he says, that these are the things that are held together in him and that they come from him. And it looks like they also really need to be cleaned up by him. So,
0: Oh, absolutely. And I, we are going to, I mean, that's a perfect segue as as we wrap up to our next conversation, which is about chapter two and specifically about what Paul has to say about the principalities and powers. And I think the key is that line... The first he he is meant to have the first place in everything, so as head mm. he's meant to have first place in everything, which does not mean the way that we I think we tend to think of authority as the place where the buck stops mm. for him, it's the place where life begins and truth begins, and goodness begins he's the head in the sense that he's the head waters he's the source, and all creatures are what they are only insofar as they are joined to the head. And the moment that a creature loses that connection, loses its source in the crucified, in the wounds of the crucified, then it becomes at odds with itself and at odds with other creatures. And I think, you know, we'll get into this next time, but that I think is where Paul is, is kind of going all along. And he learns this because of what he suffers like we, Paul recognizes, this is what was happening to me. I was allied with those powers, yeah. but we were not connected to the head.
2: Which he would even be so bold as to call the kingdom of darkness. Right. The minute we let religion, like nothing is quite as dark as a religion that thinks it's a light and isn't right. And so I, yeah, I think there's Completely something.
0: Agree with that too. And I think that's another. That's another great insight from Paul. You know, when he says, "I'm the chief of sinners." Yeah. Like we, again, we can hear that as hyperbole, you know, he's, he's being facetious. No, no, no. I think he's saying precisely because of what's true, because of what I said in Philippians that I'm blameless. Like no one had ever been as righteous as I was. That's why I'm the chief of sinners because my collaboration with those powers in separation from the head, Mm -hmm. like it was the most powerful it could be because I had figured out a way and the powers had figured out a way to use my righteousness, and 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 I was unassailable. Like there was no no way for anyone to call into question what I was doing because I I was superior to it. And,
2: and for Galatians to go and and yet here God was pleased, yes. right to let I, I'm going to lose the language, but like that that I would basically end up being Exhibit A, right that. That yes. he would reveal yeah. Christ in me. <laughs> that, yes. That that's the juxtaposition is the one. Yeah. The The powers would have approved this, but it's precisely in the places where you don't like me or want me because it looks so much like Jesus and it looks like suffering. Boy, the kingdom of darkness does not know what to do with this. And so I think that's a beautiful segue from sort of the labor of the church that's at the end of chapter one into what you're doing next. So
0: yeah. It is. That's a. That's beautiful. And that. Thank you for making that connection to Galatians. I hadn't thought about that. But this, the language of pleasure in Paul. Well, I want to end with this, Sheriff, and I want to let you get the last word on it. Like you know, as you know better than I do, better than most of us who are listening do, the ways in which Paul can get stereotyped as toxic, as a toxic man. You know, as a kind of. I mean, there were certain readings that tried to argue that he was a proto-feminist and then lots of blowback against that. I mean, again, you know all that material. One of the things that strikes me about Paul is how often he talks about pleasure Mm. and God being pleased. Yeah, God being pleased. So I'd, I'd love for you to just kind of, as in anticipation of our next conversation about powers and the ways in which they turn our norms, our social and moral and political norms against us. Talk a little bit about what it means to be in love with a God who who made pleasure and enjoys it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I remember you and I, one of our first private conversations was around that thought, right? That it was even hard for me to say the word pleasure. Cause there was something about the P and the L coming off my lips. So it was just like a little too much, like a kiss or something. I was like, oh, <laughs> can you say God and pleasure, like all at the same time, because like <laughs> pleasures were to the flesh. Right. And And again, like anything that you really liked as a human being, God must not like, right. And to somehow turn back the sense that it's not God's pleasure ever to do harm. But it's mm. God's profound pleasure for us to see his son, right? Because it's like, <laughs> if you see him, you'll see yourself, right? Mm. If, you, if you see him, little daughter, Jareth, yeah. you're going to see what you're going to be like, right? And the more that you draw close to him, face to face, watch what love looks like on a human face mm. that bears the marks of the wounds of what it costs to love in the world that you inhabit. And I don't know this as God from afar, as the God who loves you and is like, well, I'm over you and I'm, you know, divine and you're human and I've just, I've got it all Hell, It's to go, I am the God who bears the marks of what love costs in this world. And I know exactly what it costs you to try to be conformed to my, the image of my son, who is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, including you, little sister, right? Like, I know that that our father takes pleasure in us before the creation of the world, already seeing us finished in his son. He does not take pleasure in the pain that we will endure. He takes pleasure in our recognition that that is his pain within for us to make mm-hmm. sure that we've finally seen what God looks like, which is to love like that, to... Yeah care for us in those kinds of ways that say we all might end up being healed in the final days of whatever it looks like to be resurrected humanity. But if John's vision of Jesus on the throne is the faithful vision, then there's going to be one place where no one ever doesn't get to see the cost of love through a broken world, and it's going to be in the very humanity of Jesus himself. And so I just think to... Let him re um, reimagine with us, reconcile, right, is the language of chapter one, right? That everything mm-hmm. is, reconcile is not just to bring things back together, but it's to harmonize or to make congruent, that things finally become congruently beautiful and the Father taking pleasure in every time we become a little bit more congruent. Hence, we become a little more available to the love that's always triunely yeah. holding us and we see that in the face of his son and we then be looked for that pleasure in one another like that is a profound gift when he takes pleasure in the fact that we actually begin to see each other the way he sees us through his son i think then he wants to give us back all the pleasures of a good creation and a good world because he can trust us with them right with his son so yeah thank you for reminding me of that conversation we had
0: Oh no, that's, that's yeah it's lovely i'm glad. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful place to end and yeah. set us up for next time. So, chair, thank you for this, Brewer. I will see you soon. Hopefully, pray for me. I'm off to I'm off to the gym, and uh, this is a gift from my wife to me that I hope is also a gift from. She will take pleasure in watching me uh, embarrass myself. Suffer
2: with Jesus.
0: <laughs> anyway, I love you both. Let's talk soon.
2: All right, bye, friend.
1: Peace.